Howdy, I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show, a podcast where I interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. All right, well, welcome back, everybody. Last episode, we ended with JJ and Margaret separating and parting ways. JJ moved out to New York to continue running the business. But Margaret remained in Denver to continue her charity work and her advocacy work that we learned about last episode. She did ultimately decide to go on a trip with her daughter, kind of to get away and clear her mind. So, Matt, you left us hanging with a boat ride. Tell us where she went. Yes, and we teased it and said it was the Titanic. But let's build it up because the story of how she actually got on the Titanic is really interesting. She was on a trip with her daughter, Helen. They had already gone through Egypt and they were in Europe. And she got this telegram that said that her grandson was sick. And at this time, of course, when when a child gets sick, it's a big worry because whether or not they survive the sickness is a serious concern. So she went out and got the first ticket on a boat that she could possibly get back to America, which just happened to be the RMS Titanic. Oh, lucky her. I'm really excited to tell the story because I've always been slightly fascinated with the Titanic. It has nothing to do with one of my first dates as a child going and taking your girl to the movies to see the movie <laughs> Titanic. But uh, I, I, it's just totally <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> that one? That, that's the one. And, and our listeners can't see that Ren just facepalmed when you started that, uh, that song. <laughs> Is that song going to reappear in your nightmares now? <laughs> that was a documentary, right? That film? Uh, Molly Brown was on, in the film. It was played by uh, an act. What was the name of the actress? Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. That's it. Uh, and she actually did a pretty great job looking like Molly Brown. I thought she did a great job in that. So as most people know, the boat was the biggest and most extravagant of its time. It was advertised as unsinkable. It could hold up to 3,200 passengers and crew. And it's actually the second largest shipwreck of its time, only behind its sister ship, the Britannica. But the thing is, the Britannica didn't have passengers on it when it sank. Oh, okay. So it was, like a, it was sort of on a test voyage or something like that. Yeah, after the Titanic sank. So on April 10th, 1912, the Titanic set sail to America, and Margaret Brown was one of the first-class passengers on the ship. And everything was going as, as normal. It was, it was a normal trip. Everything was beautiful. There's stories of grand meals and times with the captain and, and games and, and music. And really, it was, it was a great time on this grand ship until April 15th, 1912, roughly five days into the journey. It's actually documented from her some journal entries. And one is that it started as any other day. You know, she would take her afternoon walk. And part of the daily ritual was that sometimes she would spend 20 minutes on the stationary horse. What's a stationary horse? Kind of what you would imagine it being. You sit on it and it bucks you around and you try (laughs) to hold on for dear life. So I guess the exercise is in staying put on top of the stationary, stationary horse. She also would spend about a half an hour boxing in the gymnasium. Hmm. 
No kidding. Boxing? That would have been an unusual occupation for a woman at that time, I think. It would be, and I'm trying to imagine what it would look like at that time. But it was it was really an upcoming trend for women to do, and it was advertised as firming the upper arms and waist so that it would make a corset unnecessary. Hmm. This also seems to fit with her earlier tendencies to want to kind of step outside of the assigned and expected you know, roles and even attitudes of women at that time in American society. Yeah, absolutely. I think it fits perfectly. So she's normal day. She's exercising. She's boxing. And then what happens? She goes to sleep. Okay. That sounds normal, too. It sounds normal. So it's it, everything's going normal. And then she feels a bump in the night. Mm. I thought she was writing in her diary when she felt uh, she was. We may have she taken was, some uh, creative uh, well, I, I mean, she was go- falling asleep. Still falling asleep. And she hit the bump. But she felt this bump. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't think anything about it except for the engine stopped. So she got up. She looked around and noticed nobody else was paying any attention to it. And everything seemed normal. So she went back to sleep until she heard this loud banging on her door. And she wrote in her diary this. His face was blanched, eyes protruding like those of a fish, and he seemed out of breath. He looks absolutely haunted. The man said to me, get your life preserver. Hmm. So what she did, knowing that she was going to have to go up onto the deck and it was freezing cold out there, she started preparing. So she got as much clothes as she she could. It's, it talks about a, a black velvet two-piece suit and black and white silk lapels, things that she even admits had scarcely worn. But she was really going after warmth, not necessarily style. And so she grabbed the warmest clothes that she could. It's even said that she put on seven pairs of leggings and woolen stockings to help keep warm. And then she ended it with a stole that J.J. had given her to kind of wrap up, knowing that she was going to go on deck. It's cold outside. She didn't know how long she would be there. And as soon as she gets to the top, she's immediately instructed to get onto a lifeboat. It was lifeboat number six. And next thing she knows, she's getting lowered into 28-degree water in the middle of nowhere. So just imagine being in frigidly cold weather. It's pitch black. You're on a boat. You don't know what's going on. And they're lowering you down the side of the boat Mm. into 28 degree water and not knowing what's going to happen next. Pretty wild. It is. Was she traveling with her daughter, Helen? She wasn't. Thank you for asking that. Um, Helen ended up staying back and didn't feel a need to go back home. So she stayed and finished her trip in Mm. Europe. But, of course, Margaret was in a hurry to get back to help with the grandson. Mm -hmm. So what was uh, her experience like on Lifeboat 6? So she came prepared, as we talked about just a second ago, wearing all these clothes. So she was able to share with those who weren't as as well prepared. Everybody that was on the boat, was they were all girls, except for there was one gentleman who she was not a big fan of. He actually never helped them row. They did all the rowing. Uh, which did help them stay warm. They would consistently and constantly row because as soon as they stopped, then they would they would start shivering and, and getting really cold. And but, I guess you're just talking about rowing around in circles because I mean, they don't know where to go being four days out from the coast. Actually, not around in circles. Their idea was let's steer away from the ship. Let's get oh, away from the yeah, ship. Sure. Let's get away from the debris and things of that nature. So they start steering away, not really knowing where to go. They did end up kind of coming to contact with another lifeboat, uh, and they were going to moor together, but they found if they did that, then half the people weren't able to row. Mm. So they got cold, so they separated again and kept going. But there was this great 
butting of heads between the gentleman and Margaret, because Margaret was really the one who took control of the boat. She did not have a Colt pistol in her back pocket ordering people around. That's that's not a true story. But she did take charge and direct everybody of what to do, you know, and help them get to that point. And when somebody wasn't rowing, she would say, hey, you got to row. you got to row. Not so much because they needed to go anywhere, but she knew if they didn't row, there was a real possibility of them freezing to death. Yeah, well, sounds like she possibly saved a number of lives of passengers in the lifeboat. Yeah. Hi, I'm Peter DeCaretree, Program Director and Instructor for the Institute for Catholic Philanthropy, MBA program at the University of Mary. I've been in development for 30 years and can say without question that earning an advanced degree in philanthropy and development was one of the most valuable experiences I have ever had. The Institute for Catholic Philanthropy at the University of Mary provides tactical training for new and experienced Catholic development professionals. It balances on-site, cohort-style learning with the convenience of remote coursework. If you've ever considered leading a Catholic organization or helping drive the new evangelization, enroll today in the University of Mary MBA program. We are producing the sort of well-trained, committed leaders that are crucial to the Catholic Church for generations to come. Learn more at umary.edu slash philanthropy. So what ended up happening with the boat? What were, what were some of the numbers? I find the numbers staggering. There were 706 people who, who survived out of 2,224. 492 of them were passengers. 214 were crew. If we look at the classes, 61% came out of first class, 42% second class, 24% third class. And then if you look at gender, 25% of them were men and 75% of them were women. And even more staggering to me, the lookouts, you know, the ones that were supposed to spot mm-hmm. the iceberg. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. 100% of those guys survived. Some of this is more position on the ship rather than any kind of nefarious plot to only save, you know, save the crew and the, right. the rich folks. Right. It's just because the rich folks, their cabins are up on the, the top deck, the higher levels of the ship. The third class passengers are down in the bowels of the ship. Mm-hmm. It took longer for them to, to get up. Right. Can I tell one other cool story that I came across? There was a family, the Dean family, and they were scheduled to travel on another ship from England to America. They were going to, the father had sold the business. They were going to be open a tobacco shop in Kansas City. They were traveling in third class. So Milvina, the daughter, tells a story about her father's quick actions that saved the family. He heard the iceberg hit the ship, and immediately he hustled his family out of third class quarters and toward a lifeboat that would take him to safety. She said many years later, that's what saved us because he was so quick. Some people thought the ship was unsinkable. Hmm. So Milvina was actually just a baby when this all happened. She was wrapped in a sack and lowered down into a boat along with her two-year-old brother and her mother, Georgette. Her mother said goodbye to her father, and he told her he'd be along shortly. So they Hmm. got put in the lifeboat 13, lowered. It was a bitterly cold night, and eventually they were picked up by the Carpathia. So the only reason I came across that story is because Milvina passed away in 2009. She was 97 years old. She was the last living survivor of the Titanic. Wow. Mm. I'm just touched by her father's bravery and self-sacrifice. I'll be along soon. Mm. You know, and the crazy thing about this time is the Titanic should never have sunk. 
I mean, it was marketed as unsinkable, and I think it gave people this sense of there was nothing that could bother the ship, which we know is untrue. So we have this marketing mishap that led to the potential sinking of it. There were also numerous messages sent to the Titanic that said, hey, you need to slow down. There's icebergs around. You need to be careful. Most ships had just parked for the night, Hmm. and they did not slow down, and they didn't really heed the warning of icebergs. They didn't take any of the safety precautions from that point. Another point, the lookouts, they smelled icebergs. You can smell an iceberg? You can smell an iceberg, yeah. I guess it's it's very herbal in smell, but it has a very distinct smell when you're on the water that many times you can smell it before you can see it. Oh, interesting. Another really interesting thing to me, too, is is they, they talk about binoculars. Binoculars at the time was a new invention, and every ship had a set of binoculars on it. And the Titanic did, too, and it was locked in a cage, but emphasis on the lock part because the original lookout who was supposed to be on the ship— got sick before it set sail, and stayed at home. And at home, the keys to the locked cabinet stayed with them. Mm. So they couldn't get to the binoculars. And it said that they would be able to see the iceberg Mm. if they had the binoculars. Mm. So there's so many of these different stories about how this could have been prevented. Well, they were also on trying to hit a tight timeline, right? So they Mm -hmm. were traveling faster than they would have. They maybe they got the warnings and they said, we're not slowing down because we want to get there faster. And then it was an incredibly smooth night. Right. That was one of the issues that the water wasn't lapping up onto icebergs like it was. It was just like a mm-hmm. um, a clear black surface. Right. So right. it made it even harder to see it, especially without those binoculars. Right. Right. And, you know, another crazy story is when you look at the passengers on the ship, when they hit the iceberg, ice fell onto the deck. And instead of the passengers being worried about plowing into the side of an iceberg, they picked up the ice and they started playing football with it. Well, this goes to that idea that the ship was unsinkable. Right. So what's a little right. ice on the ship? What's a little collision with an iceberg? We'll be fine. The ship's not going down. Right, right. So Thaddeus, it's not too long after this accident, the Titanic crash in 1912, there's another maritime accident, right? Yeah, I just thought as an interesting point of comparison, maybe some listeners are familiar with the maybe the most famous sinking of a passenger ship in the First World War, the Lusitania, because that the sinking of that ship is one of the steps in bringing the United States into World War I. So that's sometimes why you, you may have heard of the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915. There were 128 Americans that died on that ship, but more to the point of what I'm trying to say is on the Lusitania, 1,962 passengers and crew, 762 of those survived. Hang on to that 762 number. That's 38% survival rate. And like you said, Matt, on the Titanic, 2,224 passenger and crew, or, or pretty close to your number that you quoted, and 724 survived on the Titanic. That's a lower percentage rate of survival on the Titanic, and it's few, it's fewer absolute numbers of people that survived on the Titanic. And the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German submarine that's designed to take down a ship, do it quickly, rapidly, and efficiently, and, yeah. efficiently, and still they got more people off of the Lusitania than they did off of the Titanic. That's just, that's just shocking to me. Mm-hmm. It makes you think that there's just a level of ineptitude there on the part of the crew, especially when you talk about the binoculars not being available, the lookouts not paying attention— you know, and there's there's another story. The I, I arrogance didn't... to take out the lifeboats. 
And that's a great story that I, we haven't shared yet was they had removed many of the lifeboats so that they could give first-class passengers more room on the first-class deck. So, I mean, you're right. There is some arrogance in, the, in that thinking. Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at petrusdevelopment.com PDC22. The first 10 people to register in the month of April will receive a $40 voucher for round-trip transportation between the airport and the resort. Space is limited, so visit petrusdevelopment.com PDC22 to reserve your spot today. Most people listening to this probably have some awareness of the Titanic. It's in history books. It's, you know, there's a lot of movies about it. But we're talking about Margaret Brown here. So what is her role after the Titanic? How does she continue to be involved in this story? So Margaret Brown, being the Margaret Brown we've learned about so far, does what she always does. She gets stuff done. So after the Carpathia picks up all of these survivors and they're on their way back to America, she realizes that her fellow man is going to have an issue. The survivors of the Titanic, whether they were left behind or they were on and survived, that they were going to need some help. Many of them lost their husbands, who were their sole breadwinners of the family. Many of them, it was just kids left and there there wasn't anything else. So she she saw a need and the need was for a relief fund. And so she started the survivor Titanic survivors relief fund as soon as she got on the Carpathia even before she made it back to America. Wow. And on the way she had proposed as she did with all of these high society events. She proposed the other first class passengers, those who were very wealthy and said, "Hey, this is what I'm doing. We're going to set up a fund to help people who are going to be in need." And before the ship even landed in America, they had already raised $10,000 wow. from first-class passengers. Wow. And in total, they had raised $562,000 for the survivors, which in today's money, just as a comparison, is $28.5 million. Wow. That's amazing. And it ended up helping 2,400 people, kids and widows, get back on their feet. Well, when you were running through those numbers of survivors, I was struck by, you know, 25% of the survivors were men, 75% were women and children. And to your point earlier, a lot of families lost somebody in the family, particularly the breadwinner. Right. And so here they are in a tough financial spot. This is before GoFundMe. This is before, you know, crowdfunding. This is before, you know, social media. So it was really tough for a family that was in that situation to come out of it. And so the fact that Margaret Brown took that initiative, saw the need, and then, I mean, $28 million in today's money, so 562000 in 1912, that's, that makes a serious impact. Yeah. And Melvina, Dean, the story you shared, mm-hmm. you've got to imagine that she was one of the 2,400 people that were helped by, by the Survivors Fund. Yeah, she lost her dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually continued on to uh, New York, and she was there for a little while, and then they returned, and she lived the rest of her life in England. In England, mm-hmm. yeah. So this all started with her getting a telegram 
that she needed to return back to America because her grandson was sick. So what was the resolution? What happened with her grandson? You're not going to believe this, but you're going to have to wait until next week to find out. All right. Well, can't wait. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Dear Diary, my trip with Helen has been such a grace-filled time. The pharaohs and all the art, it was just beautiful. It reminded me of back home with all the gold that my husband helped mine out of the Leadville Mine. <laughs> Out of the miners. <laughs> How he got so much mining done by the miners out of the mine. Out of the, out of the mine. So it's not too long after 2012. There's another maritime 2012? accident. 2012? <laughs> 1912. I clearly do not know how to say <laughs> my centuries. <laughs> So in 1312... It's like he automatically just adds another 100 years on. doesn't matter what century we're dealing with. It's 1800s, it's 1900. If it's 1900s, it's 2000s. Yeah. Don't side-eye don't side me. Don't, don't you dare side-eye me. So say it again. No, you. You. Okay. Um, you're not going to believe this, but you'll have to wait until next week to find out. Je ne peux pas attendre. <laughs> that means I can't wait. <laughs> All right, F4. Do it to it. All right.